Welcome to the Men at Work podcast. This is season three, episode number six. In this episode, I'm talking to a close friend of mine, Andrew Jolly. Andrew and I are in a men's program together and have been for the last three years. And it was really a, a gift to have him on the show to share his story. And Andrew's story is really about the story of a, of a boy growing up in the Mormon church and becoming the definition of what he thought was a man at that time. It is a powerful story about shame, unresolved issues, uh, you know, barriers to healthy sexuality in the Mormon church, and how Andrew's life in many ways, despite it being beautiful on the outside, was falling apart on the inside. I'm going to leave it at that and let you and let you use Andrew's words here to tell the story. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Andrew. Um, where where do we start? So you grew up you grew up in the you grew up in the Mormon Church in in Las Vegas, which I didn't even know that there was any form of religion aside from like gambling and drinking in the state of Nevada. I was, I was obviously mistaken. <clears throat> I've met a number of, of people that are in the Mormon church in Las Vegas since that time, but you grew up, so you grew up outside Las Vegas in the Mormon church. Um, I just want to get a glimpse into what that was like for you, man. Like maybe you can give us a little bit of the background and, and what that was like being a, a young guy growing up in, in that environment in, in Vegas <laughs> or outside Las Vegas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Las Vegas proper. I was born in 1974 when Las Vegas was very small. You know, my dad moved there from California when he was five. And I think Vegas had like 50,000 people. And by the time I was in high school, there were 400,000. And today there's 2.3 or 2.4 million. So it's seen a lot of change. And so that added to the dynamic of my upbringing, you know, being in a city that was evolving so quickly. But yeah, I'm the oldest of six kids, uh, born and raised in Las Vegas. Um, both of my parents come from long lineages of Mormon ancestry, uh, polygamists who crossed the plains, the whole nine yards. And so um, being the oldest of six in, in, in the Mormon church, it like the, the term free range parenting comes to mind. Like I spent my days riding my bike through the desert, usually with one or two flat tires, uh, building forts, starting fires, you know, working on my friend's broken down motorcycle and riding around and just, you know, having fun, just total visceral boy stuff. And yeah, of course, we'd go to church on Sundays and all of that got embedded into my soul from before the time I was verbal or had memory or consciousness. And so untangling and understanding all that Mormon, all those Mormon hooks has taken years, but it seemed like a very um, normal upbringing to me. Well, it sounds, it actually sounds awesome. Like from, yeah. a, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a similar upbringing, nowhere near the desert. I live in the Northwest, but yeah, riding my bike, kind of playing wherever I wanted. So when, at what point did it change? At what, at what points does church on Sunday become like this indoctrination or, you know, as you're talking about in your, in your work with men into this kind of strange sexual confusion, like where's the, where's the crossing point? So I would say there were two or three, probably three big crossroads for me. First is when I really made the decision to go on a mission, you know, serving a, a mission, a two-year mission for a young person in, in the Mormon church is a huge rite of passage, something the culture celebrates, something the community really gets behind. It's very, very, very important. Being the oldest of six kids, I think that played into it. But I had lost my virginity a couple of years before, and you must confess all of your sins before you can go on a mission. Your bishop, your leader, has to write a letter to the prophet in Salt Lake saying, I recommend this young man or young woman to go on a mission, and here, here's his application. 
And to do that, you have to be, quote, morally worthy. Well, I wasn't considered morally worthy by the church and by my leaders. And so I had to go before, you know, my bishop and stake president and others and confess my sins. And, you know, the outcome of that was a year of, of repentance. I had to take a, a year off. I, I couldn't participate fully in the church. I was essentially disfellowshipped or kind of, you know, castigated for a full year. And that was painful, man. It felt like the prime of my life. And to spend a full year trying to repent for something that I didn't fully understand was very confusing and very difficult. And another crossroads, Travis, I would say is after my mission, I came back and I felt empty. I felt like, what did I just do? I went to Chile and I um, tried to baptize as many people as I could in that beautiful country. And I came back and I had kind of a hangover. I was like, what did I just do for two years? And I met so many amazing people and I was trying to change them. And at the end of it, I was like, man, did I, did I do good or, or bad? And the world is so much bigger and more beautiful than this little bubble that I grew up in. And that started to really sink in. And I started to be, have doubts and questions and that grew for a period of time, but I kind of stuck with the program, did the things I was supposed to do, got married young, got married in the temple, started having kids young, but it gnawed on me to the point where in my mid thirties, I had a total collapse, man. I just like huh. couldn't take it anymore. That's fast forwarding quite a few years, but I would say that was like the third big turning point for me regarding my faith and upbringing was not being able to, to take it any longer. And I had to eject, I had to get out. And there's a whole story of course behind that, but, but those were like the big moments in time that come to mind when you ask that question. Yeah, man. It just, yeah, it is such a contrast, right? There's like this beautiful life you're writing. I can just picture you on your BMX ripping around the desert. It sounds amazing with a beautiful family and loving parents and a nice community structure. You have a Sunday church. and um, But the that moment with, with the bishop sounds, that sounds really heavy, man. Like, so they, they want to know everything you've done. Like, is there a cutoff point? Like, do you, is there a point in your youth where you're, it's just everything, man. Like I, you know, looked at porn when I was eight or something or anything like what's the. It, everything. And you know, there's, there are different guidelines kind of, there's like the official playbook that most bishops need to follow. But then there's also a lot of interpretation there, but basically what I was told was anything that you feel bad about, uh, you need to confess. And growing up Mormon, there was a lot that I felt bad about. <laughs> it took some time, man. And yeah. right now, bishops are, they're just lay guys. They're plumbers and accountants and, you know, businessmen and school teachers. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not trained in this. And some of them have, are better equipped to deal with a teenager confessing all of their sins in their office. You know, I, I, for whatever reason, all my friends party in high school, I didn't, my sins tend to be, you know, and I use that in quotes, tended to be more sexual, right? Exploring with girls and masturbation, you know, porn, things like that, that really made me feel guilty. And I was literally told that having sex out of wedlock was the sin second only to murder. Whew. And I believe that it, it, at my childhood. And so it was heavy, dude. I felt like if I got hit by a bus today, man, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm toast. You know what I mean? Like there's no, I'm never going to see my family again. I'm going to be rejected from my community, from God, blah, blah, blah. And that was, that was real. I mean, the, the, those beliefs are, are deep and they're, they're embedded. And, um, I probably downplayed them to try to protect myself, but at my core, I kind of believed that stuff growing up. It's, I was taught that from the, from day zero. And so, yeah, dude, it took a lot of, um, it took a lot out of me having to 
unravel um, something that felt so natural and so easy for my body um, to, to call it the sin next to murder really mess with my mind. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's really heavy. I mean, you have to go in and you confess all this stuff and you've done the, the, the thing, the only thing that's worse you could have done would be to kill someone. Um, I have to imagine how, and how old would you have been when you had to go and confess this? So I was 17 when I lost my virginity and then I was 19 when I confessed getting ready to go on a mission, man, almost 19. Like I, you know, I mean, I, I know myself at 17, man, I was confused as hell. Um, you know, sexuality was like not a thing that was talked about a lot in society anyway, but it wasn't like I was, I didn't have the hang up of feeling guilty about murder. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, it's, it's pretty heavy. There's a lot of, a lot of shame. All my, everyone in my community knew not because it was announced, but there's like, okay, Andrew is 19. He should be going on a mission. He's not, but he's still going to church. What's wrong? He's repenting. He's trying to, you know, be forgiven of his sins so he can be clean enough to be a mission. It's very embarrassing. It was a very difficult time for me. And I, and I never once, here's the weird thing. I never once thought the system could be wrong. The beliefs that I were that I was given could be wrong. I, I, I internalized every single part of that. Everything wrong in that scenario was something broken inside me. And I think looking back, that was, that was the hardest part to, to feel so broken and feel so damaged. And looking back, like I was just a normal, good kid. I was a good kid, dude. I wasn't sleeping around. I wasn't taking advantage of girls. I wasn't, I, I, I really had deep feelings for my girlfriend and to, and what we shared was something beautiful. And to now, to not only be able to, to not enjoy it, but to, to put this young man in a box and to, you know, give him a scarlet letter to year to wear for a year in front of his community is is violent it's actually violent dude it's 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 horrific it's spiritual abuse in my opinion um so you so you literally had to uh, i don't i don't know what a scarlet letter is man i'm sorry i'm uneducated in this area what is what did you have to wear is this like a real thing or is this a metaphor no it's a metaphor from the the you know the the famous book about the Salem witch trials, I think, and, and wearing the scar era and wearing the scarlet letter of, of, of being an adulteress in that case and, mm. in a book. And yeah, you know, it, I, I felt that. I felt that imprint, that, um, that kind of branding, you know, and those themes have, have emerged in, in different types of art, but, um, yeah, I'm. I was referring to that. The I get it. No, I I get it, man. I, I, so you're so you're in there for a year. You're you know 17 or 18 years old. Uh, you're the oldest of six, though, man. Like, were your parents like were your parents just pissed at you? Like, did you bring? Did, was it like seen that you also brought shame on your family? I mean, I, I have to, I don't know. Like, what's the? You know, to their credit, they handled it pretty well. My parents um, are loving people, and I never thought for a minute that they. Um, they treated me the way that the church did, but they were for sure disappointed. Um, and probably for more of a sense of disappointed that Andrew feels guilty or disappointed that Andrew wasn't worthy to go on a mission. But at, at no point did my parents pull me aside and say, Hey, you're normal. You're okay. This is all going to be fine. You know, they were just like, yeah, go with the process, go confess. And if you want to go on a mission, which they really wanted me to, yeah, confess, you, you know, you kind of go through the process and, and it's all good. They, so they thought they saw it as a good thing. They were not embarrassed of me. Um, I felt like they loved me, but they were also underdeveloped spiritually at the time and emotionally. Um, and so I don't think they had the, the wisdom to kind of 
show me the meta picture there. You know, my parent, my mom was like 20 or 21 when I was born, you know, they, they were pretty young. Dude. They so she's, she's 37 of... years old yeah. trying, to, trying to give yeah. good counsel and guidance to a teenage boy. Yeah. It's totally, totally. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, all right, man. So let's, I know there's a lot to the story here, but you, so you get through your year, um, you know, you described it as it was like a, like a wasted year. You just kind of took a time out on life and then you head to Chile on a yep. mission to, and you're, you're more or less trying to convince the good people of Chile to join the Mormon church. Is that. I mean, yeah, that that's pretty much the goal of missionary work. Yeah. Mormons like to spin it lots of different ways, but that's essentially why the missionary program exists is to create more Mormons, to convince people to, to become baptized. Yeah. We did other stuff, but that the majority of our day to day was teaching people about the church and knocking doors and, you know, all that fun stuff. And so you spent two years doing that. And then you said you came home and you had another crossroads. Like you said, you were a little, a little or a lot disillusioned yeah yeah I was disillusioned um I had this feeling like did I did I do good for the past two years my heart was in the right place all Mormon missionaries have a heart of gold in my opinion you know they they're out there trying to do what they feel like is selfless service helping people in a, the most meaningful way but in Chile, a lot of people joined the Mormon church and then they all left. No one really stayed. Um, 3% of Mormons in Chile are active, go to church, right? So it's, there's a lot of people who join initially, they get excited or whatever, and then they leave. And, um, and so that was part of the equation, like, okay, so I baptized these people and they kind of went back to their normal life or whatever, or didn't continue in the Mormon church. And so that was part of it. But another part of it, Travis, was my brother and I took a trip to Europe for six weeks and wandered around Western Europe. And that was part of my awakening. I went, I'd previously gone to Egypt and Israel. And, and so coming from a pretty humble family where we didn't take international vacations and stuff like that. And, and then over a short period of time, living in a foreign country in South America, going to all these different countries. I, and, you know, I think it's natural at that stage in life to have an intellectual and philosophical awakening. So all of that was kind of happening in me at the same time. And the result of that thinking and those experiences that I was having was this feeling that Mormonism seemed very small. Huh. It didn't feel adequate it didn't feel like what it purports to be which is the only true church the only true way to god on the earth the only organization that has all truth that's a bold claim and it just felt shallow it felt hollow after those big experiences in that period of my life and i started to feel uneasy about this conviction that Mormonism was the answer to all of life's questions. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's gotta be crushing though, because that's your whole belief structure. Like you grew up with that as your whole thing. So that, so that falls down, then what? Well, just like the, 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 the way that I described dealing with those, the sexual guilt, I internalized those doubts to a large part as well. Hmm. So yes, I had all those feelings like Mormonism was small. It wasn't adequate. It wasn't up to its, its claims. There are lots and lots of holes in it. But instead of having the fortitude and the conviction and the strength and the groundedness to understand that it was the dogma, it was this made up religion that I was struggling to believe in. Instead of that, I actually internalized it again and said, my faith isn't strong enough. I'm not doing enough to, to, to be given this 
this faith from God, right? I, I'm not, I'm not doing enough to live up to the standards to be worthy of this kind of next level of conviction that other people around me obviously have, right? The, my leaders have, my parents have, my friends have. And so, uh, you know, I wish at that time I would have deconstructed Mormonism um, as much as I deconstructed myself, as much as I doubted myself. And unfortunately, it was that dynamic that really kind of kept me in the church, even while I had serious doubts. So you, you came back from your, from your mission, you'd been to Europe with your brother and you stayed. Mm -hmm. So what, like, what, what does that look like after a mission for a young man? Like you stay and then what, what's next? Yeah. You know, I was still in the current, I was still in the flow of the, of the community, right? Like, I, you know, you never realize how strong that current is until you try to get out of it or mm. stand against it or stand still or move upstream. And so for me, I was going to BYU, a Mormon owned, you know, university. I was dating Mormon girls and um, met a woman that I just totally fell in love with. And we got married. And as time went on, um, I think this opens up a whole nother probably can of worms or, or, or line of questions, but essentially once we were married and I was married at 24, leaving the church would have blown up my marriage. So for several years, I decided just to kind of not take it super literally and, and participate as a social Mormon as best I could and still, you know, um, go with my wife and support my wife and that kind of thing. Um, and not having, not drawing any like hard decisions about Mormonism. I was busy building a career and doing other things. And, you know, frankly, I was probably not, I wasn't ready to really untangle all of that and deconstruct the, my belief system at that point in my life. I just wanted to move on with life. I wanted to build a career and start a family and, do big things. And that just kind of dropped in terms of, um, in terms of my, my priorities. And I just kind of went forward and uh, kept my head down as best I could and, and just uh, worked my butt off. <laughs> so, yeah, man, I've, I've experienced a version of that. It's a nice working your butt off and putting your head down. is a really good way to avoid looking inside. I've, I've definitely done that a lot. Um, Everybody does Travis. Don't you think? <laughs> I mean, like, I spent a lot of my, my life doing that. It depends. Maybe unless you have some kind of spiritual awakening when you're 12. I don't know. Um, but, right. but let me ask you, man, because I, uh, I don't get a lot of chance to, to, to dig in with people about this, but you, so you're, you go to college, um, what you're like 19 or 20, you're at BYU. I mean, most people's college years, um, you know, they're maybe, I don't know if they're all wild, but certainly there's, there's, you know, some drinking and, and probably some, you know, there's, there's a good, there's a good amount of, of sexual liberation happening, shall we say. Yeah. What, what the heck does life look like at, on the campus of Brigham Young University for, <laughs> for a young 20 year old guy who's been celibate for two years? Like, what do you do? Oh man, coming back from my mission. I mean, I lived there in Provo before my mission and coming back it was even weirder, like you said, because I had, I had, you know, I had been a, extremely celibate. I mean, to, to, a, to a crazy extreme. I think I masturbated twice in two years. I'm like, okay. Yeah, dude. I didn't, I didn't go on a date. I didn't talk to a girl. I didn't flirt with a girl. Like, you know, there was nothing, man. I shut the system down hard, full stop. And so to come back to Provo, which is a weird place, you know, um, just one of the weirdest places in the world, um, it was hard on my system. It was very difficult because there's so much pent up sexual frustration in Provo, right? Because here you have um, BYU, 36, 38,000 students. You have UVU right down the street, another 15, 20,000 students. 
Um, and then you have a lot of other young people who move there, young Mormons who move to Provo just to kind of be in that scene after high school. Maybe they're studying massage therapy or something else. There's, you know, there's a hundred thousand horny college students crammed into this <laughs> tiny little town. And they're in, here's the, here's the setup, dude. Okay. They're taught. Okay you need to get married as soon as possible and start having as many kids as you can. And that's literally what I was taught. I mean, the words were a little softer than that, but that was the message. And you can't have sex until you are married. And so you're encouraged to go on two or three dates a week. You're encouraged to ask girls out and to be bold. And you're encouraged to, you know, get to know them quickly and profoundly in quotes. Uh, and so to, to, to find your eternal companion, but you know, you can't have sex. Not only can you not have sex, you're not supposed to do anything beyond kissing. And so Provo is a weird, weird place. Like the, the hormones are just out of control. And there are, I mean, it's no wonder that Provo is the home to, to some, some very messed up, like sexual, you know, acts like the Provo float and docking and soaking and things like that you you may have heard of you're laughing so you have heard of these things no I, I'm, just, but I'm, I've just I've made up so many stories in my head in those last in these <laughs> okay. last 10 seconds man I don't even know where to yeah. start so like you'll yeah you'll so let me I let me just get straight with, though yeah, yeah. Go ahead. so these yeah, yeah. these practices you're talking about we don't we could get into a little bit of detail we don't have to but I'm imagining this is like how to not have sex but still get your needs met is that the how, how to have sex and not call it sex right um, <laughs> i love the innovative what are the what are the what's the term they say necessity is the mother of all invention or something or yeah exactly yes that's true i mean i heard stories of people going to vegas and getting married having sex for the weekend and then getting divorced and coming home you know i mean because that's in the rules. You're that's that's okay. I mean, technically, I mean, <laughs> look, I mean, did that ever happen? Maybe, but it's an extreme example. But it it's representative of the kind of thought, mm. the kind of um, philosophy behind sexuality and dating in that in that realm. And it's really tough. Um, and it was tough for me uh, because you know I was very aware of the fact that I was a very sexual person, very in tune with my sexual desires and needs. And yet I had a very confused relationship with them. And, and so like, you know, using my wife as an example, when Allison and I started dating, it was like energetic. It was like, boom, it was magnetic from the very first moment. And and we didn't have sex, but we came pretty damn close. and we were both tormented about this and we found ourselves again i found myself again in front of a bishop explaining to this stranger who was probably a byu professor or a door-to-door -door salesman what i had done and why i felt guilty and him you know really getting upset with me and saying things like, if you continue down this path, you won't have an eternal family. You won't be able to be married in the temple. And, and my poor wife, you know, at the time uh, dealing with a strong amount of sexual energy, but not understanding it and miscategorizing it as, as, as being, you know, errors or flaws or weaknesses instead of enjoying the magnetism that was absolutely clear and absolutely present in our relationship and seeing it for what it was we we called it something else and we called it sin we called it guilt we called it being weak when actually we were being strong we were in our power we were we were creating we were laying the foundation of a relationship that is has lasted 23 years now and is better today than it's ever been in any moment in history. And that, that spark, that energy that we share today was present all of those years ago. And we, we just didn't understand it. And so it, it, it was very confusing. And of course, we're not the only ones who 
who have deep attractions, who find people that they're um, deeply connected to, but then have to cut through all these layers of dogma, of judgment, of misunderstanding, all of the all of the ways that that shows up in the body and in the mind and trying to really get to the core of that is so hard and so confusing. My, my wife, Allison, um, lost so much weight. She weighed 98 pounds the day we were married. The stress of unraveling mostly the, the sexual misunderstandings and all of the issues that surrounded that caused an enormous amount of stress on her body. And um, when we got married, that just kind of, it kind of, she kind of returned to normal within a, within a few months, she was, that all that stress on her body had dissipated. Wow. It was strange. Yeah, it was strange. It was very difficult to see. When we look back at our wedding pictures, we cry because of how, how painful that was physically and emotionally and spiritually on both of us. Well, I mean, yeah, you talk about how it shows up in the body and that, that, I don't know what's programming, but yeah, I guess it's, it's, you know, it's programming from other people. And then you self-perpetuate that through your own thoughts, your own, you know, guilt cycles. But, yeah. you know, you've talked a bit about what that looked like for her. How did that manifest for you? Disconnection. Yeah. I felt like I disconnected, right? I couldn't, I couldn't really handle it. And you mentioned an interesting term, the guilt cycle, because I, I, I kind of, I, I like that phrase because it's not like I lived in this perpetual state of misery. It was like, I felt I was, I was enlivened by the energy in our relationship. It's a strong, powerful force and it motivated me and it fed me and it nourished me. And then we would get into these situations where we'd be close and intimate and want to create more intimacy and feel more connection. And we would do things that we would feel horrible about the next day. And that, and then we would be like, I would be confused by that. So what do you do with that? I just shut it down. I just totally disconnected from my, from my body. And, and Allison, I think my, my take was that she internalized it in such a way that that created a depressive cycle that actually shut down the very systems that are meant to keep her alive, mm. eating and nutrition and breathing. And um, that's how powerful it is. I mean, you're, you're, you're dabbling with life force, you know, I mean, these are, this is the strongest energy in, in my body, I believe, right. In our, in our bodies. And, um, and, and, and calling it a sin and calling it all these labels and, and using it as a weapon to threaten your relationships, your future, your eternal salvation. This is, this is why fundamentalist religion is so, can be so harmful, right? Because uh, you're never good enough, no matter what you do, you have you you create an impossible standard to live up to and you will knowing that you will never meet it and so that guilt cycle is alive and well was alive and well with me every day that i was in that in the in that religion and it was incredibly destructive so the other the only other option there's two options you can shut it down you can shut you can disconnect from yourself at, at your most fundamental core level and live a celibate well okay, pre, pre-marriage celibate. And a lot of people live a post-marriage celibate life too, I will say in, in Mormonism or something similar that resembles that. Or you live in this perpetual cycle of guilt. It's kind of one or the other, right? You can't really have it both ways. And it's, it's, it's an impossible situation. You know, man, it's, um, you know, hearing you talk about that, I'm, I'm reminded, like I, I got a glimpse 
into a similar version of that world, not through the Mormon church, but just through the, uh, you know, another fundamentalist church locally, you know, where I was growing up, I dated a girl that was in the church. And I remember experiencing that guilt cycle through her. Yeah. And she went wow. through a very similar process that you did around having to sit in front of us, a, 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 a group of male church elders to repent, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. You know, you, th you think about that in the context even of today of like, so you're this, you're a young man or a young woman and you're sitting in front of this group of kind of old white dudes and you're having to go through your sexual history as if it were a litany of, of sins that you had committed. Um, the imprint that that would leave on someone I have to imagine is, is, is very heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And it sounds like you experienced that kind of as almost like a third party as like a contributor. I wonder if in your relationship, if you felt like you were blamed for that, like somehow responsible for yeah. her, her sins. Yeah. That's, that's exactly how, how it felt at the time. Right. And so as, as I've talked about that guilt cycle, even though I didn't, I, you know, I wasn't an active member of that group or anything, there was like this, this sense of like, well, now I'm guilty for having created something. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. which in, in the moment was nothing but, you know, beautiful sexual connection. But, and as right. you said, it's the most, most potent energy on the planet when you're, you know, when you're a teenager, especially it's feels, it feels, it feels especially potent. Um, For sure. So, so yeah. And, you know, yeah, and, and it's, it's out there all over the place. Um, but, um, it's ubiquitous. I mean, it's yeah. all, what we're talking about is, is, is ubiquitous throughout all humanity. This was just my form of it. And it really had a profound impact on how I was shaped as a person. I mean, one of the most impactful, you know, experiences or themes in my life for sure. So you, I mean, you got married young, although I did get married when I was younger than you and I was not in, <laughs> in a fundamentalist religion, but how old are you? 22. Wow. Yeah. I might've been, I might've been 23. I think I was 22 though. Yeah. Yeah. 22. And um, anyway, there's, there's not really much of a, there's, there, I don't have any kind of huge traumatic story behind it, but I just thought I'd let you know. Cause you said you got married young and I, yeah. Yeah. It, it's rare to find people who get married young. Well, I've been, people have thought that I'm <laughs> people have thought that I'm Mormon people who I've met. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, uh, Just mostly based be on that. well, based on my age and the age of my oldest, my oldest daughter, uh, right. they've kind of, oh, like, oh, and they, they kind of assumed something. And I'm like, no, I just got married when I was really young. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. nice. So you, but you know, you see, you got married, you're, you're living in, living in Provo at BYU, you and Allison. Um, I mean, what a beautiful story too, by the way, we'll, we'll get to that, but you guys stick it out. And you, you start a family together because I know you have four kids, right? So that what, what's, what's that, what's the kind of married life look like is, is the guilt and sexual repression get any better? Like, I mean, <laughs> where do you go from there? <laughs> I almost feel like that's a setup. The answer is no, <laughs> no. I mean that um, unless you address the core issue which is in my case, and I believe in a lot of people's cases, a disconnect from yourself, mm. a giving up of your own inner authority to some external entity that you acquiesce to, right? Unless you own yourself and know yourself, these cycles will continue to perpetuate until they're interrupted. And that was true for me. And it was true for my wife. So I think when you're, when you're disconnected from yourself, right. And you, you, you look for validation from something or someone else besides yourself, you will constantly live in this cycle of acting out, feeling less than good about it. 
internalizing these feelings, these negative feelings of guilt, shame, remorse, hatred, whatever. And then you go back to life, resolve to not to do that thing that caused you pain again until that wears off and you fill, you create that void again uh, that needs to be filled and you act out and you, and you, and then you feel guilty and then you try to change, you know, there's that, there's that perpetual cycle. And for me, it showed up in porn and ultimately in, in being unfaithful to my wife. And it was uh, for Allison, it was the opposite. It was, it was more the shutting down that I kind of talked about. So um, we had a good, we've always had a good sex life, meaning we've always been able to connect sexually, even at our darkest moments. And there have been many, we've always been able to find a way to come together and hold each other and physically connect in a way that makes us feel okay in that specific moment, even though the rest of our world may be crumbling. And, and yet Allison kind of disconnected and shut down her, her sexuality um, in certain ways, not entirely. And I lived this guilt shame cycle um, until I, I couldn't take it anymore until I had to really wrestle with uh, who I am and, 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 and believing that there was some God out there communicating to me through a church, through a prophet, through a bunch of old white men, like you said, <laughs> and that I could never, you know, setting standards that I could not live up to or agree to, um, you know, acting like my body was a force that had to be fought against, that had mm. to be controlled, that had to be tamed that had to be dominated um, through sheer, sheer will, you know, was a, a really important piece of, of my discontent. That wasn't all of it, there was a lot more, but that was a big piece. And I think it was the, the area of my life where this guilt shame cycle kind of manifested itself. Um, I never, I've never been into substances, uh, never, even as, you know, college age, post-college, whatever, I never have had any desire to, to get into any substances, which is ironic because as you know, I later got into the, the marijuana yeah, industry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my vice, you know, if you want to call it that, uh, may not be a totally accurate description in, in my opinion, but my, my weakness, quote unquote, was, was numbing out um, sexually and that that you know manifest itself in different ways and it was never like to the point where it ruined my life or really um, was out of control um, i could point to a lot of people and things that are were much worse but it was unresolved to say the least it, it, it was a source of pain for me and um and then there were there, there was a spiritual void. There was an intellectual void in my life. It wasn't just sexual. There was, there was a lot of other uh, areas where I, I didn't feel complete as a person, where I had questions, where I had yearnings, where I had um, feelings that didn't, that didn't fit right. And so it was a culmination of all of those things that ultimately led me to, to a place where I just couldn't take it anymore. And I had to distance myself from the church formally. And that created a huge problem in our marriage. Because while I was doubting and while I was searching my soul and searching the universe for answers, trying to understand why I couldn't believe in this religion that goes back five, six, seven generations on both sides of my family, Allison was actually finding solace through scripture reading through prayer through fasting through church service through reading talks through through the conversation that happens in the women's groups and the conferences and all these things and i was being repulsed by these conversations i was repulsed by the things that were being taught by the prophets and the leaders of the church and she was finding 
these concepts and, and all of the inner work that she was doing as a result of it really kept her grounded. So we were in this weird kind of bypass where I was like feeling more and more out of place and uncomfortable with the church. I had a lot of issues with its history, with its leaders, with its social stances, with its policies. And she was like, it's not about the policies and the history. It's about how I feel internally. And when I pray, I feel a certain way. I feel grounded. And I feel like there are answers that, that help me stay grounded in it. And so we were just moving in completely different directions. And I finally got to the point where I said, you know, I've got to leave. It's driving me nuts. And I slowly distanced myself. And then eventually I, I resigned and I said, I, I can't be even be considered a Mormon anymore. And that was prompted after some LGBT policies that the church adopted several years ago. And when that happened, I said, fine, I can pretend I can be a social Mormon, but if they're going to take a stance like this, I'm out. And I quit. I resigned. I sent a letter to my bishop. I'm done. And Allison ultimately, that rocked her. I mean, that brought up so many issues that she, we eventually got to the point where we were talking about separation. Mm. And that was the only time in our marriage we've ever talked about divorce or separation. She asked me to move out. And I thought about that and I determined that I, I wouldn't do it, that I just, I would suck it up and let her and the kids participate and not, not get involved in these church, church issues and just not make it a, a focal point anymore. So I stayed, I shut up, I quit pointing out all the ways I thought the church was wrong. <laughs> I stopped reading books and listening to podcasts and all these things. And I just shut up and I, and I just, I kept my mouth shut regarding the church. And I let her know that she was the most important thing to me. She was more important to me than the church hmm. and that my kids were more important than the church. And within about three or four months of doing that, of just shutting up for once, she came to me one night and said, um, I haven't told you this, but I, and, and, and by the way, Travis, there were two times in Allison's life where she's taken antidepressants. One was that episode when we were dating and having the sexual yeah. <laughs> guilt. I can imagine you would need to weigh 98 pounds. Yeah. She did. She took him for almost a year to help get her through, to kind of calm her in that storm. And then the second time was when I quit Mormonism. I resigned from the church. She wow. got, to, she went to such a dark place. She was so confused. It was like she was being drawn and quartered. Her body, her soul was just being split apart. She was being forced to decide between the church, something she believed in her heart and her soul, and her husband, who she knew loved her and was committed to her. We, we had a beautiful relationship, beautiful children, a beautiful life together, except for this church issue and all its tentacles, man. And she was being, she essentially, she was being forced to, to decide because I, it, while it is possible to live in a mixed faith, uh, you know, marriage in Mormonism, it's not, it's not really practical. I, I would argue that for most people, it's not practical. It's not possible. So she was on antidepressants. She was suffering and enormously, um, we both were in many ways, and she got to the point where she said, fuck it, I cannot take any more of anyone's input, God's, the churches, Andrew's, you know, the prophets, anybody, my parents, and she said, I am wiping the slate clean, and I'm going to rebuild my belief system from scratch, and she did this without telling me, and she went to the Mormon temple every week. She read her scriptures every day. She fasted once a week, went without food during prayer and meditation, you know, and all these things. And she, uh, at, within a few weeks, um, decided she couldn't believe it anymore. Something changed in her. Something shifted and all, of the, all her beliefs changed. And um, she came to me one night and said, I've been, I wiped the slate clean. 
I forgot everything I believed and I'm rebuilding it. And I just don't think I can believe it anymore. And it was completely on her own. And I just like melted down. I was just like, how is that even possible? How can, you know, a grown woman get to the point in her life where she literally rejects everything that she she's been taught since she was born and rebuilds that completely on her own by herself with four kids, a husband, parents, blah, 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 blah. It was very difficult, but she did. And um, yeah, we've been, we entered our second or maybe third phase of our marriage at that point when that, when that happened. And we've been kind of just growing and loving and doing our thing ever since. But that was a big, big, big turning point in our marriage. Yeah, I yeah, man. I didn't I didn't know that you had left the church separately. You know, I yeah. I but it is. I mean, there's there's a lot there, but you know, the thing that's that strikes me is like on the surface. You know, if I meet you right now at a beach in Maui, you and Allison and your four kids, right? It's like you're a fucking poster child for the Mormon church, right? Like on the surface, both of you, like you're happy. You've been together since you were 20 something. You got these beautiful kids, right? Mm -hmm. It's the unwinding of all the stuff in the background, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Man. So so you guys, so you guys decide to leave, like, is there, what happens to your families? Like do, do your families, do they, do they freak out? Like, because it, it sounds like there's lots of lineage there, man. Well, <clears throat> my family and Allison's family are very different hmm. and they both handled it very, very differently. But we had four kids, you know, uh, two of whom were teenagers at the time. And uh, we have two daughters. And then we have two, two sons. Our, our daughters took the church stuff very seriously. They were brought, it, brought up in it. They spent their weekends and weekday nights doing church activities. They were very, very much involved. All their friends were Mormon. And so that was tricky. Our first thought was, you know, after Allison kind of became clear on where she was, the second thing was, how do we communicate this to our kids? And we both looked at her and we said, I don't know. We looked at each other and said, we have no idea. Yeah. Let's just be honest, though. I said, all right, Allison, you've got this one. You can, you can handle this talk. <laughs> so we basically sat down with our four kids and Allison told them what she had gone through. And this was a few weeks after she let it settle. And, you know, um, and she said, kids, I no longer believe in the church. And it was funny, Owen, our, uh, who's now 16, he raised both of his hands and said, freedom. It was like a Braveheart moment. He was hilarious. <laughs> you know, he hated going to church. He was a fish out of water there. But the girls both started weeping. Mm. They were both, they knew what this meant. You know, when I let, when I resigned, I'll never forget the night I went into Ella's bedroom and told her that I, I had resigned and she broke down. And through her tears said, I don't know why, I don't know why you can't just do what's right. Mm. And what, what I took from that was like, I don't know why you have, you feel so fucking important that you have to blow up our family over your childish beliefs. Yeah, That's what I felt like. You think you're so goddamn important that you'll ruin our family over this. And I literally was at the point in my life where I was, I could not take it anymore. It was, it wasn't even a question anymore. It was about survival. Leaving was the only way I could survive. I could draw a line in the sand and said, this is me. And so that was incredibly hard. And she had a similar reaction, but not quite as difficult when Allison left. And she was going to early morning seminary every day before school for, for an hour studying with Mormon, other Mormon kids. Very, very, very involved. She was doing about 10 or 12 hours of church stuff a week. And we said, 
Um, we're here to support you, whatever you decide. If you want to keep going, that's totally fine. We'll support you. Allison said, I'll continue to go to church with you as long as you want. And that she continued to go for three or four months and then, and then had a, an experience of her own uh, that caused her to stop believing and to, and to want to distance herself. And Claire, the next youngest after Ella, she decided to leave within that period. And the boys were, we were out. We started goofing <laughs> off together every Sunday like from that moment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's how it went for the kids. It was, it was tough. It was definitely a, a difficult transition. But looking back a few years later, Travis, I cannot think of a better experience to model for our kids. This was part of our individual hero's journey, right? This was part of deconstructing life and finding our purpose and claiming what we need individually to be whole. And they had a front row seat at an age where they could understand at least part of it. And it was hard and it did feel like our family was being torn apart at times. But at the end of the day, they got to see their parents go through their own individual processes to claim and to find what they needed individually and as a couple to be whole. And I consider it the greatest gift of my life, being Mormon and being not Mormon, being ex-Mormon is the greatest gift of my life. It, it has taught me so much. It has been a huge mirror. It has So much about life has been reflected through that journey um, that I'm actually very, very grateful for it. Um, and, and having gone through that with kids, I could understand it was also a huge blessing in disguise. Yeah, I mean... It's your, your story is, your story is like, it's fucking heartbreaking, man. But also, and I, I mean, I know you and Allison, right? I've seen you guys together. I have not met your kids, but it's like, you got this beautiful family um, and a very strong bond out of all the shit that you had to go through um, and that you're still going through, right? I mean, it, it's uh, so, so now like, now that you're through it though, like one of the gifts you have is to be able to go back and help, you know, other young men that are in this, in this place of confusion. I, I have to imagine that there's, you know, outside even just the Mormon church, there's probably lots of, lots of young men out there struggling with this. Like you must have a beautiful way in with them, but what is it that you're, what is it that you're wanting to help them with? in your, in your current kind of mission purpose these days? That's a great question, Travis. And I hope I don't meander too much when I try to answer it, but you go ahead and meander, man. It's okay. After leaving, there was so much anger. There was so much betrayal that it's taken me years to process that. You know, you start unraveling all of the ways that this belief system impacted your life and changed the course of your life and the missed opportunities, all the wasted energy, all the wasted resources, all of the self-hatred, all of the, the habitual negative thought cycles that I still to this day as a 46 year old man, haven't been able to fully untangle myself from. And, and, and all the personal development work I've done, all the studying, all the, the, the work, and there's been a lot that both of us have gone through. I, it feels like I just keep pulling back all of the layers of misunderstanding, all the layers of resentment, all of the anger. And so while that was unfolding, Travis, the last thing I wanted to do was to, 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 to swim in Mormon circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm like get me the furthest you can possibly what's the opposite side of the world of salt lake city you know what i mean like how far can i go away um even though they're the people i resonate most with i i can meet an ex-mormon and go deep in 10 seconds right like there's this shared 
history, there's this sense of understanding of, of this kind of shared lived experience that, that it, it's a language that we, we speak fluently together. And, and so for a long time, I, I didn't really want to be around that. But it just in the past few years, as I've gotten into men's work, I have felt an unmistakable draw back in to that community from a, not a place of anger, but of, of a place of love. And the reason is because I know how, how hard it is, how difficult that, that path is. Um, you, you walk out of this black and white set, movie set into this giant colorful world and it can be, it can be overwhelming, right? And it's, 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 it's a lot, but they're my people. And I love, I love the shared values that we have as Mormons. I love their commitment to family. I love the commitment to education and to hard work and to all these great ideals. I love what our ancestors built. I love how resilient they were. And there's a lot about Mormonism that I love. And I just feel drawn to, to, to be part of the conversation. And with what I have experienced with you, Travis, these last two years in our men's work together and other things that I've done in my life, I have just felt this unmistakable draw to be, to be part of um, the conversation, specifically for post-Mormon men. Mm. I want to be part of that. And I want, to, if, if I can contribute, if I can be part of a conversation that helps men find meaning and helps them find healing and helps them live a fuller, richer, more abundant life, like I want to be part of that. And there's something inside me that is, is nourished by, by doing that. And I have, I have tried in my own little ways, just organically over the years to do that. We've hosted a bunch of programs at our house and workshops and, and um, a lot of friends and, and endeavors in the ex-Mormon community. But recently, as, as I've shared with you previously, I have felt even a, a stronger, um, more compelling urge to actually make something more formal. So that's something that I'm working on now and will be out in, in 2021 uh, regarding you know, ex-Mormon men's work. So it's such a, yeah, it's, well, I guess it's like they say, right? Your wound is your gift. So yeah, um, totally, totally. And I, it's, it's hard to imagine a person better equipped to do it. You know, someone that is, has been through it and is willing to look at themselves very objectively <laughs> or get someone else who can do that for them. And, and then to, to bring that, man, I also feel like there's just a lot of compassion that you have it's less about how do I get you out or, you know, how do I, how do I make the church wrong? It's more like, how do we just start to, you know, as you said, how do you start to own yourself and know yourself? I love that your framework that you work with owning yourself you. and knowing yourself, like getting, yes. getting these men to do that. I, I have to imagine whatever you create will be oversold given <laughs> the, degree of sexual confusion among even non-religious men. <laughs> you might have some guys showing up. They're saying, I was never part of the church, but I feel like I could benefit from your program. <laughs> well, you know, Mormonism does have its own very unique and very interesting, you know, uh, take on sexuality. And, you know, we didn't even get into Mormonism's you know, official dealings with sexuality and polygamy and all the stuff that went on in its, in its early origins. But, but yeah, man, it's a big issue. It's a big part of the conversation. Thank you for the kind words uh, and support. It has been through men's work that I have discovered this need. It's not, it's not something I, I, I want to do for financial or political or any other kind of reason it's it's a need in me to commune with with men who share in this collective past mormonism is crumbling many 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 people are leaving my entire family has left the church mm. my parents left the church in their 60s and 70s and it's been so incredibly painful 
and healing and beautiful and exquisitely painful all at the same time to see my siblings, my parents, you know, my children, many of my friends go through this transition. Um, there is such a need to support each other when you have gone through this type of a transition that, that I just feel compelled to be part of it. I'm not interested in taking people out of the church. That is such a personal decision and a personal quest. But once somebody has made the decision to leave, I want to, that's where I think there can be better um, areas of support. There can be more shared wisdom. There can be more lessons learned in, in that, in that realm. It's amazing, man. Um, uh, yeah. I can't wait to see what the program looks like next year. Uh, and so let me ask you though, man, I, I, I think we can tie this thing in a, in a bow here, but I know you don't have a ton of, um, of presence right now. I know you're in the middle of doing a lot of writing and, and creating. Is there anywhere people can go to find you at this point or should, or is that, is that a to be determined? <clears throat> I start, I'm laughing because I, I just deleted all my social media stuff Perfect. after watching Social Dilemma. I'm yeah. like, I don't want them to know anything about me. Uh, so no, I mean, you can write me a letter. Uh, I, can I give love you an it. address. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm still on Facebook. I only check it like once a month uh, because of the men's work we do together, Travis. That's the only reason but, I have uh, Facebook too, just so you know. Yeah, we're in that <laughs> together. I'm with you, brother. Um, thank you for asking. I will have more... Uh, resources to offer uh, next year. And so maybe by the time this episode comes out, yeah. I, I can have a by link. By the time this episode show airs, notes. we'll put something in the show notes. And then of course, when your yeah. program launches, I'll, I'll blast this out to uh, all the, all my Facebook friends who are also all of your Facebook friends. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. It's very, very generous of you. And I yeah. have to say, I'm really, really impressed with, with your podcast, all the work uh, you're doing and, um, you know, really, really impressed by everything that you do, Travis. Uh, you're a good dude. Awesome, man. Well, let's, uh, we'll call it a day for there. The If you were ever curious about what it might be like to grow up as a boy, as a man in the Mormon church and have a crisis of faith and a crisis of family, um, well, now you know one man's version. I'm sure that you got a lot from the episode, just hearing Andrew's words, it was a wonderful conversation to be able to have with him and just to have him share a story. I'm linking up everything that Andrew is currently doing in the show notes. And so if you are interested in what he's up to, please do go find out more about him. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love your feedback either on my website at travisstreb.com or you can leave me a review on iTunes on uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you are listening to this podcast. And I will talk to you again for episode seven. <laughs>